Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to bless your name and to worship you and to worship your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To thank you for him, for sending him, that he may redeem us from our sins, redeem us from death and condemnation, and to give us life, his life, and his righteousness, and to give us his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we just pray, Lord, that you would show us Christ. Teach us about the things of Christ. May you cause us to see him and to love him for who he is by the teaching of your word. May his word be sufficient for us, we who have sought refuge in his name. We pray, Lord, for your blessing upon our teaching this morning. May you open the scriptures for us for the sake of Christ. We pray and we thank you in his precious name. Amen. John 10, I'm sure everybody knows where John 10 is by now. <laughs> John 10 verses 13 to 15. John 10 verses 13 to 15. The Lord Jesus Christ says, The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the ship. And our sermon title is going to be, I know my ship. I know my ship. And this is going to be election part one. I know my ship. That's election part one. What is called the gospel in our day and time is not the gospel. It is presented as some random call that does not have any specific audience in mind. God doesn't really know who it is that he is calling by his message. Yes, the sower sows the seed on all kinds of ground, but we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ in the parable of the soils or of the different grounds, that it is only the good ground that yield fruit. But the good ground does not make itself good. God is the one who makes it good. But that understanding is denied in the majority of the so-called gospel teaching. The most popular version of the gospel says the sinner is made good ground by baptism, by some sprinkling. They are made good by their own faith and decision for Christ. Or that the sinner, though fallen, still has some goodness left in them to come to Christ by themselves. Yes, we do not know who are the sheep. We do not know who will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd by just looking at them because they do not wear any particular kinds of clothes. They do not have reflector clothes on them to say, oh, look, they are the sheep. <laughs> the sheep of Christ are not known by the uniform that they wear. They are marked first and foremost by the very fact that they believe the gospel and they love one another. Those are the commandments that Apostle John told us. 
to believe in the Son of God and to love one another as he commanded us. The shepherd knows who the elect are. The shepherd knows his sheep. And he knows them in a very intimate way. He knows them by name. So when he calls them, he calls them by name. And so because of that, we know that the message of the gospel has an intended audience. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ would always say, those who have ears, let them hear. That was always a constant refrain of his. So the gospel is only for those who have been given ears to hear, but the deaf do not hear unless Jesus comes and opens their ears. The blind do not see unless he comes and opens their eyes. And those with withered hands cannot stretch them out unless he commands it. And so everyone who is a sinner cannot come to Christ unless Jesus shows up and commands them to hear and commands them to stretch out their hand. And the hearing that is being talked about is not just hearing some audible sound to hear the sound of cars passing by. No one says, oh, I heard a voice outside, then that means that the voice of the gospel. <laughs> the hearing that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual hearing, is the hearing of the gospel of grace. And those that are sent by the great shepherd to care for his flock, preach the gospel. That's the only way you can tell if someone has been sent of God. They bring God's message and God's message is Christ Jesus. And Christ's message is the gospel of free and sovereign grace. But Jesus says there are some who are hirelings. And the hirelings do not sacrifice anything for the sheep. They will run away because they are hirelings. And there are many hirelings in this business. Who are ordained by God himself to be hirelings. In his business that they approved may be shown. The hireling preachers do sing some Jesus songs. But their concern is not for the sheep. They are not there to take care of the sheep. They are not there to take care of the spiritual needs of the sheep. They are not there to grow the sheep in the knowledge of Christ. Their concern is to fleece the sheep. They want to get their tithes and their love offerings. That is never absent in their teaching. Giving is never absent in the teaching of all hirelings. They have to find a way to get money from you. They have nothing of Christ and so they can't tell you much about him. And yet they always have a huge following. They always have... All hirelings have a huge following. And people will stop to see anything. People, if you have a huge following, wherever there are just a lot of people gathered, guess what? More people are going to come. <laughs> like there has to be something special going on here. <laughs> Let me stop and see. And many churches are filled with such people who are just interested in the very fact that there are just so many people gathered, but they are not interested in Christ. 
They are interested in the fact that there are just a lot of people who smell good, who are wearing all kinds of perfumes, colognes, deodorants, and it just is such a nice environment to be. An environment of all these people, just hugging people, just, and of course they love the interesting stories. And so the hirelings always preach interesting stories. They always bring interesting stories about themselves or about some other person who is not Christ. They have itching ears, and so they come to have their ears tickled. And itching ears are ears that are not interested in knowing Jesus and the gospel. That's what itching ears are. They want to hear something new, some latest technique, some latest trick on whatever it is, even weight loss program in the church. But God has always had his people in every place and every time. The Lord Jesus Christ said to Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, Do not be afraid, do not despair of preaching the gospel because of the opposition that you are going to encounter. For I have much people, I have many people in this city of Corinth. Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. Luke records for us and says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. That is election in the city of Corinth, and these people did not know they belonged to Christ, but Christ knew that they were there. And so even for us here, we have to keep talking because Christ has people that we don't know of who are here. Who are here to come, we just don't know when and where and how they're going to come. But they're going to come by the preaching of the gospel. We have to keep speaking. So Paul had to keep talking. He had to keep preaching the gospel as Christ's instrument by whom the gospel was to come to his people. And so he says to Paul, don't let anyone silence you and no one will attack you. That's assurance. How do you know that Jesus? (laughs) Because he's the sovereign one. No one will attack you in spite of the noise and the opposition that they may make against you. So the assumption is the gospel message when truly proclaimed is going to be met with opposition. It's going to be met by people who are going to try and shut you up. But God says, do not be afraid, speak. Do not keep silent, and we shall not keep silent about Christ and his gospel, Christ and him crucified. That is the message that God has given us to proclaim. If we do not have that message, the message of Christ and him crucified, it is time to not speak and be silent. The moment that we don't have that message is time to not speak and be silent. And that was a message of assurance to Paul as it is to us even now. A message of his sovereignty and a message that this work is not about us, it's about him and the people that he has. But the God of the modern day church 
is different from the God of Apostle Paul. And the Jesus of the modern day church is different from the Jesus of Apostle Paul. Jesus had much people in the city of Corinth that election. They were already his. They just did not know that they belonged to him. The Jesus of Apostle Paul was the Jesus of election. The Jesus of the modern day church is a very lonely Jesus. A very desperate God who is running for office and is seeking votes that he may beat his rival, the devil, at the post. The gospel is pictured as Hillary and Trump vying for the White House. And whoever has the better argument is the one who is going to get the most votes. There's no election of the kind that Jesus teaches, of the kind that Apostle Paul teaches, the sovereign election. So the God of the modern day church is a poker player. He is a chess player and also plays the lottery. Sometimes he picks the winning numbers and other times he goes back home heartbroken and loser. He does not determine anything and knows things only because he has a long telescope to see what his creatures are up to. He does only that which his creatures allow him to do. These creatures have to give him permission. He is not the sovereign one who works all things according to his good pleasure. He is pictured as playing darts. A God who plays darts. Who throws darts. And hopefully on a good day, he may just be fortunate enough to get a good hit. And get someone to choose him. And this God, unfortunately and consequently, is on high blood pressure medicine. And is on depression medicine. And potentially he may just die. And that is the God that is being preached in our pulpits across not just America, but across the whole world. The modern day preacher says salvation is free for all, especially those that are smart. Those that are diligent enough. Those that are resourceful. Those who are careful enough to see the value of Christ so as to choose him. They're like choosing a horse that they think may win the Kentucky Derby. Look at that one. He looks strong. He may be a good bet. <laughs> so let me choose him. The Christ of the modern day church paid for the sins of everyone. But only if the sinner would come and sign the check with their faith. This faith that they self-generated. And it is this sinner who chooses this lonely and miserable Christ. The Christ who is desperate to fill up heaven with some good well wishes. And so the preacher becomes a cheerleader for Christ. Lest he fails to get anyone to him. Lest Jesus fails to win the race that is set before him by his creatures. It's now the creatures who have set a race for Christ. <laughs> And this Christ cannot choose anyone, otherwise that would make him unfair. Unless the sinner chooses Christ, it's only fair if the sinner makes the choosing. 
not when Christ does the choosing. And so the sinner sits as the sovereign one, the sovereign sinner over a desperate Jesus and telling Jesus what to do, opening the door only when Jesus knocks, only when Jesus comes with good manners. If not, to keep Jesus freezing outside until he learns his lesson. What am I saying? I'm saying the gospel of our day has the sovereign sinner and a desperate Jesus. There's no election of grace. There's no you must be born again from above to see the kingdom of God. I'm saying most of the preaching that is called gospel in our day denies the gospel. It denies the truth about salvation. It denies about how salvation actually works and is accomplished or was accomplished. But praise God, he has not been silent about Christ and he has not been silent about how he purposed the work of salvation. He has not been silent about how sinners approach him and who can approach him and on what grounds do they approach him. He has not been silent on his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. In the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, God did not send him to serve everyone who is in this world or who will ever exist in this world. But he came to lay his life down for the ship. Jesus came to lay down his life, that is to save the sheep, those that the Father gave to him. And it is this Jesus who brought the knowledge of God's sovereignty in salvation and spelled the terms of grace and said in John 6, verses 44 to 45, No one can come to me. No one. No one can come to me unless who? Unless they bring the tithe. Unless they make a choice. No. Unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. So the one who gets raised up at the last day is the one who has come, but they come because the father drew them to Christ. It is written, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so the Father has to grant. The Father has to grant, and he grants your coming through election. And the Father has to draw, and he draws you by the new birth, by regeneration. And then he has to teach you, he has to illuminate the scriptures. All those that had been granted the right of approach, the right to come to Christ. And he draws them to Christ. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I said to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's establishing terms of salvation. Your righteousness has to not just be equal to that of the Pharisees and the scribes, it has to surpass, which means the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes was not enough 
It could not cut it. It has to exceed. And this man tried to be righteous. Matthew 18 verse 3. Jesus said, Assuredly, I said to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are terms of grace. The Lord says the kingdom of heaven requires a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, and that means a righteousness that is apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And this righteousness cannot be bought off of the shelf at Walmart. And not only that, one has to be converted. You need this righteousness, but you also have to be converted and be like a little child. Why a little child? And bring nothing. Because a little child has nothing. They have no degree certificate. They have no money. They don't know how to help themselves in anything. Everything that they are is given to them. And Jesus says, when you have been converted, when you have been taught of God, you become like a little child. You realize that salvation cannot be end. It can only be given. Jesus brings the theology of election. He brings the theology of the sheep and gods. The language of tares and wit. And that's language of division. That's language of separating. And we shall be looking on those things in depth because that is the teaching that we have here in the book of John. And it's going to take a long time before we get to the text. But we are building the background to understanding election. And next week we are also going to have election part two. Because I just could not put everything together and not have a five-hour sermon. Which Stan would have been very glad to have. It is this Jesus who brings the theology of the security of the believer. He says the believer, everyone who is in him is secure because of who he is and who God is. John 6.39 The Lord says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, of all, of all those that the Father gave to Christ, the Lord says, I should lose nothing, not one, but should raise it up at the last day. So how can a preacher come and say salvation can be lost? How do you turn that on its head to say salvation can be lost when it is the will of the Father who sent Christ that of all that he has given to his son, none shall be lost. This Jesus, the Jesus of John, has a very high Christology. He has a very high view of the person and the work of Christ as the Son of God. Very, very high Christology. Jesus is not just a good example. Everything holds, salvation holds, because of who he is and who sent him. It is the will of the Father that those that are in him will not be lost. That's very high. 
the God of John loves the Son and has handed all things to the hands of the Son. All power and authority are in Him. He has given the Son the command to give life as to many as He pleases. That command was never given to anybody else. He has given all judgment to the Son the power to give life or to condemn to the son that all may honor the son as the father is honored. And salvation is not in believing the father, but in the son. The son is the object of faith, of the faith that saves, not the father and not the Holy Spirit. And yet both the father and the son bear witness of the son. The Holy Spirit bears witness of the Son. The Father bears witness of the Son. And the Son bore witness of himself. So the Jesus of Jesus Christ is very important. He says the terms of salvation. And says some really hard things. Some really hard words. That some of his followers deserted him. They stopped following him. They said, who can hear this? This is too hard. (laughs) Who can be saved? But what is impossible with man is possible with God. The theology of Jesus says the Godhead is Christ-centered. The glory of God is Christ-centered. Life and death depend on what one does with the Son. But even more, what God does with the sinner in or outside the son. So the issue at the end of the day is, are you in or outside of the son? If you are in the son, done deal. There's nothing that you can do to improve it. There's nothing that you can do to get yourself out of it. That's the theology of Jesus. Is that high? It is the Jesus only highway and the Jesus only station or there's no salvation. If we are not driving on the highway of Jesus alone, that's no salvation. If we are listening to a station that is not Jesus alone, there's no salvation. He is the truth, the way and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. So salvation depends On who you say the son is. It's all about the son. It has nothing to do with you. It's about the son. But this is not something. That one born of the beloved. One born of a woman. Is able to make testimony of. By themselves. Unless they are born again from above. And apostle Paul says. No one says Jesus is Lord. But by the Holy Spirit. So one has to be born from above. They have to be converted and they have to be taught of God. The son still has to be revealed to a person by the father. And so those who know the son do so only because the father was pleased to reveal his son to them. And these are they who are called the elect. The elect are born again. The elect are taught of the Father. The elect 
are converted. They are chosen. Chosen and given to the Son by the Father from before the foundation of the world. Chosen to be the bride of Christ that he may adorn them with his own garments of righteousness. Chosen that they may be holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And so a high Christology or a high view of Christ is not a doctrine of man. That is the doctrine of God. And it is God alone who teaches that. Not the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not have the testimony of God about his own son. That is why they will say Christ is some exalted angel. The Mormons too. They have not been taught of God. Because everyone who has had and learned from the Father comes to Christ and coming to Christ means they make the same testimony of Christ as the Father is making of him. So salvation is tied to this high Christology. And if anyone is hearing from God or is claiming to be hearing from him, they have to bring a very high Christology of the Son of God. Anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh has not been taught of God and is still an unbeliever. And anyone who says God the Father is the same as the Son and is the same as the Holy Spirit and that they are not different persons so that the Son is the Father who came in the flesh, they are not telling the truth. Because it is not the Father who came in the flesh. It is not the Father who came in the flesh. It is God the Son who came in the flesh. We are saved when we have faith, we put our confidence in the Son and not in the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not some power like nuclear power. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not just some electromagnetic force. He is not electricity. He is God, the Holy Spirit. So that understanding is not taught of man. It is taught of God. So if a man is saying they are from God and they don't bring that understanding, it doesn't matter how big their following is. The truth of the matter is they do not have the testimony of God. And T.D. Jax is one of them. And those like him. So it doesn't matter how religious and how moral they are, they are not born again. If one is born again, they can't help but to testify of Christ as God who come in the flesh. And Christ as Lord. And that testimony is given by the Holy Spirit. And so the Christology of Jesus centers God's purpose, God's work and love on the person of Christ. And this Jesus has come as the good shepherd of the sheep to save them. And he is no hireling who flees in the face of danger and leaves the sheep exposed to their enemies that seek to devour them. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd because of his 
origin because of his dignity as the son of God. That is what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. And so he committed himself from eternity to take care of the sheep that the father would give him. To take care of them as their surety and mediator before God because the sheep have no ability in themselves to mediate for themselves before a holy and righteous God. So the Roman Catholic nonsense of praying to Mary and the dead saints for them to mediate on behalf of sinners is Malachi. I'll call John Biden. What's his first name? Joe Biden. It's Malachi. <laughs> or oh, I quote my favorite theologian, Joyce Meyer. It's hogwash. <laughs> and his commitment is such that he has come to give his life for them that they may be spared of death. He has come to remove all that which was on the ship to destroy them. He has come to die for them. He has come to die in their place that they may be spared. His death for their life. His death for their benefit. And if he dies, then the ship take to themselves the benefit of that death. Jesus Christ did not just die. He died in our place that we may partake of the benefit of that death, which was the cancellation or remission of our sins. Why? Because it was his death alone that could satisfy the curse of the law that was on his people. The sheep were in trouble because they are sinners. They fell in their father Adam and found themselves under captivity to sin and judgment of condemnation. Found themselves as slaves to sin with no means to pay for their own redemption. With no means to reconcile themselves to God. They found themselves needing to be ransomed. But could not meet the ransom price to exchange for their own freedom. Why? Because the ransom price for a soul that is under sin and condemnation is too costly. And there was no one to be found from the loins of Adam who could redeem such for all were born condemned in the first Adam. And that means there was nothing that they could offer of acceptable value to satisfy the righteousness of the law. And a sinner by definition is one who is not able to give or produce the righteousness that the law requires. If you are not able to produce the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that the law demands, then you are a sinner. The law is the measure by which you are determined to be righteous or not righteous. The law does not bend its requirements, as many teach. The law does not honor your best effort. Because a lot of people are talking about, well, we are just going to do the law and God will accept our best efforts. The law does not honor a try. It only honors perfection. It 
honors complete obedience. And the law honors the perfection of Christ because he alone could obey it. And the law now in the face of Christ honors the perfection that we have because the law of God really knows that we have nothing to give it. The preachers don't know that, but the law of God realizes that and it acknowledges the fact. The law says the soul that sins must die. It says, and without death, there's no remission of sin. There's no cancellation of sin without death. But one cannot bring the blood of any animal. He can't bring a raccoon or a squirrel and expect to make an exchange for eternal life. No, someone has to come. Someone who is not of this world. Someone whose origin is from above. Someone who causes a birth from above. Someone who puts you in a different mother, in a different womb, being born not of man, not of the will of man, not of blood, but by the will of God. Someone who has life in himself. Someone who pleased God and had the righteousness of God. And angels could not have the righteousness of God. And this one could not come and just die unless he was subject to the law. Jesus could not have been killed by Herod when he was about two years old. He had to experience the law and fulfill the law. God is not subject to his law. This is something that people don't get. God is God. He is not subject to some external commandment. Because if he gets subjected to an external commandment, then that commandment has power over him. The true God of the Bible makes laws for others. But he is the law unto himself. So that whatever he does is good because it is he doing it. Imagine just whatever it is that you do is righteous because you are the one doing it. And you don't have to answer to anybody. You don't have to explain to anybody why you did what you are doing. Whatever God does is good because it is he who does it. And he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He performs all his good pleasure, not just some of his good pleasure, but all of his good pleasure. And those who used to know the God of the Bible, like Eli, would say, it is the Lord, let him do what is good in his own sight. They didn't try to qualify things. And this was the news that God, that God was going to kill his sons because of the foolishness that they were doing at the tent of meeting. How they were eating sacrificed meat before and not following the proper procedures and sleeping with the women at the entrance. And Eli doesn't say, uh, no, can you go back and try and negotiate? <laughs> Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do whatever is good in his own sight. That's an understanding of the God of the Bible. He does whatever is good in his own sight. 
And that testimony has been lost in many pulpits of our day. We now have a God who checks in with his creatures lest they get mad at him. He is checking in to see if his Facebook page has a million likes. <laughs> Come and like us on Facebook. <laughs> we now have a God who can be put on timeout by his creatures and be mad to sit, sit in a corner. But that is not the God of the Bible. But hear this. If salvation had to be accomplished, it had to be by a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest. And not one from this wilderness of sin. Not one from the loins of Adam. Not one from this world. One who has venom of the fiery serpents in their blood. Because everyone who is born in the first Adam has the venom of the fiery serpents in their blood. But here what God says, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. This is what he says of Christ. Apostle Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let's look at that text briefly. The Apostle Paul says, In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, so Jesus came in the fullness of the time. That is, the appointed time. God's appointed time for him to come because Jesus was not bringing a fire extinguisher and some fire blankets. There are no fire trucks in heaven. There are no fire department in heaven. God never puts out fires because fires are put out by people who don't know what they're doing. Jesus did not live in California where fires just spring up everywhere without warning. Jesus was not reacting to the fall of Adam. Adam fell by God's decree because Christ was appointed to be our life and righteousness from the beginning. Salvation is not some random work and so the fall of Adam was not some random fall. It was not something that could be prevented. It was not something that could be prevented by some good standard operating procedures. Adam did not forget to sort his driveway on a bad snowy day. And so he fell. No. Adam came in the fullness of his time and fell in the fullness of that day that was appointed for him to fall. But the scriptures say, in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die, said the Lord. In the day. You are going to eat, and when you eat, you are going to die. It didn't say, if you eat. No. In the day that you are going to eat, you are surely going to die. So Christ came in the fullness of time, and if Christ, the Son of God, came in the fullness of time, guess what? You also have come to Christ in the fullness of your appointed time. Because the God of the Bible is the God of appointment. And so God 
sent forth his son. And the sending of his son means or presupposes that the son pre-existed his being sent. But he could not just show up on Mount Calvary. Jesus could not just come and go on Mount Calvary. Why? God is spirit and thus he does not have any body. He does not have hands. God does not have a body. He is spirit. And because of that, he cannot be nailed on a piece of wood. You can't nail a spirit on a piece of wood with some nails. So Christ had to come and clothe himself with a body that could be nailed on the cross. The body that could be subject to weakness and yet without sin. A body that could suffer death and so he came to be born of a woman. Why? So that he would be born under the law and be subject to the demands of the law on behalf of his elect. It is only those that are born of a woman, those who are in the first Adam, which is everybody, who are born subject to the law. Man broke the law and so man had to fulfill the law. But no one could do it since all were born in the fallen Adam. Men are born of a woman and so their representative also had to be born just like them. If anyone was to be found fit to transact salvation, they also had to identify with us but as sinless, without sin. And so Christ's body was conceived not from the egg of Mary, but of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not fertilize Mary's egg. Why? Because Mary was born in Adam, and so her egg was also born in Adam. It was created in the fallen Adam. And that would have made Jesus a sinner and liable to the condemnation of sin for himself. Jesus' body was wholly made of the Holy Spirit. And Mary was just an incubator, a surrogate mother. And that was for union with his people. Christ was incubated in the womb of a woman that he may identify with their experience and for union with them. And so we can't just talk about union with Christ on the cross. Our union with Christ began from eternity in election and his humanity was to share in our humanity for our redemption. And so if we minimize union with Christ, we end up with theology that is a lot of leaky holes. The elect were in union with Christ by God's decree of election. They had union with him in his incarnation in time. Eternally, we were in union with him because of election. But when he came in his incarnation, we were also in union with him even in his death and resurrection. 
And even now, we are in union with him by his spirit. And so Christ had to come and humiliate himself by taking the nature that is even below that of angels, that is human nature, that he may be subject to the demands of the law, and that is death. And so the incarnation of Christ was so that Christ may be under the authority of the law and to suffer its condemnation because of our sins. Remember, Jesus Christ is God and God is not subject to the law. And the only way that God can be subject to his own law is when he takes a lower nature of human beings that are subject to that law. So the incarnation of Christ was so that Christ will be answerable to do the law. And so he had to live under the law and to obey it perfectly. Otherwise, any failure to live under the law would have subjected him to the same case as Adam. He would have needed another sacrifice of his own to atone for his own sin like Aaron did in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 verse 11 says, this is on the day of atonement and this is what would happen to Aaron or whoever was the high priest. They were to bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for the high priest, in this case for Aaron, and make atonement for himself and for his household and kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. So the high priest, because he was a sinner, had to make atonement for himself first. And if Christ had been born of Mary, having the genes of Mary, then Christ needed to make atonement for himself. Jesus would have needed another Jesus to be redeemed. (laughs) But Jesus, praise the Lord, could not sin and did not sin. And that does not change the reality of the temptations that Jesus had. Because a lot of people, there are some people who argue and say, well, if Jesus could not sin, then the temptations that he had were not real. And that's a foolish argument. If someone shoots bullets on a bulletproof material and the bullets fail to go through, does that change the reality that the bullets were fired? The bullets were fired, the gun was fired, but the bullets could not go in. The problem is what? The problem is the bullets. They are encountering some better material. (laughs) Strong material. Bulletproof material. Jesus is sinproof material. So that does not change the reality that he had real temptations. But the temptations came to one who is the God-man. The God-man is not going to fall. He is God. He can't sin. (laughs) And praise the Lord that he could not sin. And so Christ was incorruptible. Jesus was the man from heaven, the spiritual man, and he could not fall no matter what. And so many, because they have a law Christology, it's a Christology problem. That's why they speculate all this nonsense. Jesus is God, and God does not and cannot sin. He is immutable is unchangeable and for you to sin you have to be mutable you have to be changeable you have to be liable to change 
not Christ. And so it's a Christology problem. They have a low view of the person of Christ. And so his perfect life, the life of Christ, is what qualified him to be the perfect high priest and sacrifice. But you have two things that you require for there to be an offering and atonement. You need the priest and you need the sacrifice. And both of them have to be without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish, which means sinless. And so the law obedience of Christ was to qualify him as the perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice. So the law obedience of Christ cannot be minimized. His blood heals and justifies and saves because it was righteous blood right from birth. Christ cannot be separated. People need to stop that foolishness. And so this Jesus, this Jesus that we are talking about, this Jesus who has all this view of God and who is explaining to us the work of salvation, came and said, well, guess what? I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And as the surety of my sheep, I have come to carry the burden of removing the sin and the leprosy, the judgment that was on them, and to bring them back to the Father, or else I'll bear the shame forever, or else I perish. So he came to fulfill all the terms of their salvation, and he did. And one of those terms is that he had to die in their place. He had to die. The Lamb of God said, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the preaching of the gospel. When we are preaching the gospel, we are saying the message, Behold Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Otherwise, if you are not doing that, we are not preaching the gospel. And so his death was no ordinary death. And there was no other death ever of his kind. It's the only kind of death that has ever been died. No other death like the death of Christ because it was the death of God, of the sinless Son of God. Only he was capable of dying a death that redeems a sinner. And so it was different. Because no one could die the same way. It was the death of God, as I said. The death of one who ever lives. It was the death of one who ever lives. And so this one comes and says, John 10, 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, he knows his sheep. The teaching in most churches denies a Jesus who knows his sheep. They have a teaching that says it is the sheep that have to figure out if they want Jesus to be their shepherd. It is the sheep who have to make the call of whether they want to be under the shepherding 
of Christ or not. But the Lord says, I know my sheep. Jesus is not saying he knows some things about the sheep. He is not saying he has the social security numbers of his sheep. He is not saying he has the physical addresses of the sheep so that he can send them some junk mail. The Greek word here that is translated no is ginosko. The transliteration of that is G-I-N-O-S-K-O, ginosko. And that means to know. But in this context and in the understanding of the hearers, it is this Hebrew understanding. It was used to describe beyond just knowing, but a very intimate relationship like between a wife and a husband. That's the knowing. For instance, Adam knew Eve. Adam did not know some things about Eve and then she had a child. Adam knew Eve and they had a child. That's the knowing. is the intimate knowledge. And so th- this is saying Jesus has a very intimate knowledge and love for his ship. Knowledge of his ship and love for his ship. And so the knowing carries in this context the weight and connotation of love, not just mere knowledge. Okay? It is the weight and connotation of an intimate love, not just mere knowledge of their existence. Jesus is not saying he knows that the ship exists somewhere. So how does Jesus know the ship? The father gave them to him and that is why he would say all those that my father gave to me will come to me. He knows them because he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He knows them and calls them by their names because he gave them their names. Now, election is a doctrine that is hated in the majority of the professing church world. And it is very strange to me that the church would hate the doctrine that established it. There is no church without election. The church continues to be the church only because of election, not because of tithing offerings. The doors of churches are open if they are true churches only because of election. They are open not because they are faithful preachers, but because God still has his people that he gave to Christ who have to hear the gospel. Without election, there are no people to save and there is no church. Election is what guarantees salvation. The holy angels, there is nothing that comes to God that is not elect. It has to be chosen. The holy angels were elected in Christ. There's nothing that is not elected that is not elected in Christ. The holy angels were elected to not fall into sin. Hear me. The holy angels never needed redemption because they never sinned. But God still says they are not as pure in his sight. Job 4 verse 17 to 19 says, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Is it possible for a man to be more righteous than God? Is it possible for 
a man to be pure than God himself. And Job says, if he puts no trust in his servants, the angels, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a month. The angels, the holy angels never fail as to sin, but as far as God is concerned, they are not as righteous as he is righteous. So if you are not as righteous as God is righteous, guess what? There's two fault in you. <laughs> but we were elected. We were elected to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We possess the righteousness of Christ. And so we have a higher righteousness than the holy angels. We are holy, sanctified, and without blame, without spot or blemish before him. And he perfected us forever. We have the righteousness, not of angels, but the righteousness of God himself. So election is what puts us to possess the righteousness of God. It puts us in union with Christ who is God. And the non-elect cannot partake of the redemption that is in Christ because they are non-elect. So election is unto redemption. Election is not salvation itself, but it sets the stage, it sets the path for you to partake in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you can't preach the gospel and deny election. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where, Apostle Paul, in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us, just as he, the Father, the Father is the one who did the choosing, as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, when before the foundation of the world, why that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. The Father chose us in Christ. And when did this happen? Before the foundation of the world. And that is how Christ knows his ship. He already knows his ship before they existed. And so they exist in time that they may know who they are in Christ Jesus. Salvation did not begin when we started preaching the gospel. <laughs> the work of salvation is God's work from before the beginning of the world. So listen to this. For what end were we chosen in Christ? What is the reason why God put you in Christ? That we may be holy. So your holiness is in Christ. Once you are in Christ, you are holy. And without blame before him, 
Once you are in Christ, automatically you are without blame. And that assumes that we had to go through the fall. We had to sin somehow, somewhere. But listen to the motivation, God's motivation in his election. He says it was his love. In love, he chose us. It was his love. His love was an electing love. And that love was in Christ. The love of God is an electing love. And if it is an electing love from eternity, it also in time shows up as a redemptive love. So if you want to know whether God loves you or not, the issue is not to look at the circumstances of your life. You look at the gospel. Because all those that God really loves, he serves in Christ. Because I see on Facebook a lot of people asking questions. Does God love everybody? No, he does not. It's only in the context of those that he chose in Christ that we hear of God's love. He loved those that he gave to his son. And because he loved them, he saved them in Christ. And it is they alone who partake of the redemption that is in Christ. So the love of God is a very particular love. It's only towards those that he chose and gave to the Son. In his election, he predestined that these that he gave to Christ would be adopted to him, to the Father. They would be adopted to the Father, not as natural sons, but as adopted sons. God only has one natural son, and that is Jesus. Everyone else has some adoption papers. You have to be adopted into the son. And they could only be adopted as sons if they had fallen in Adam. And this adoption was to happen by Jesus and not by works. And this is where really understanding the work of Christ becomes very important. Your adoption is salvation. And it does not happen by works. It was according to God's good pleasure. His sovereign will. When someone is being adopted, they do not choose the parents. It is the parents that choose them. And so God chose us by his sovereign will and that according to grace. Grace means the merit of choice is found outside the person being chosen. It is election according to grace. And so he says, he purposed this election and redemption that his glory, that the glory of his grace may be praised by making us accepted in Christ. That is how salvation works. God purposed for his glory in saving sinners like you and I, getting accepted, getting us accepted in his son, that his grace may be praised. And so if this is God's purpose, is there any way that this can be frustrated? Because if Becca was put in Christ and Becca ends up getting lost, then God has failed to have his grace 
praised. God would have failed to accomplish his work in Christ. It's not going to happen. So anybody who says salvation can be lost, they don't know what they're talking about. Romans 8, 28 to 30. We're not very far away from finishing. We are just talking about election. So we're going to be Romans 8, 9, First Peter. <laughs> and then we'll be done. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Apostle Paul writes and says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the code according to his purpose. And when people use that verse, it's one of the most popular verses in the church world. The majority of the people who call this verse do not believe in this verse because they deny the theology of the next verse. <laughs> A lot of the people, I'll say upward of 80% of the professing church people who call this verse deny predestination. And yet predestination is the reason why all things work out for good. The purpose of God is in his decree of predestination. That is the only reason why things work out. And yet the people who quote this verse deny predestination. But listen to this. The ones who love God are these who are called. Who are the called. The called. The ones who love God are the ones who are the called. The sheep. Remember, it is only the sheep who hear the voice, the call of the shepherd. They are called by who and for what? They are not called to God in an altar call, but of God and according to his purpose. So the calling is not in the church activity. The calling is done by God himself. They who love God do so because God first loved them in Christ and he called them to himself. And so what was God's purpose? What was God's purpose in calling them? Verse 29 of Romans 8, for whom he foreknew, that is those he foreloved, he loved them before they showed up. He also predestined, that is he predetermined by his decree that they should be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that means that Christ may be the preeminent one. The firstborn here is not talking about birth. It's talking about preeminence. That Christ may be preeminent in all things. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so those he foreloved in Christ, he called. And all shall be called. And these whom he calls, the foreloved ones, these he also justifies. Do, do you see the eternal perspective of salvation? The salvation of ourselves or our children or our grandchildren is not in our running, is not in our effort, is in God's purpose. He will call them if he predestined them to be called. They're coming. And he will justify them because that's his eternal purpose. So these, he makes them holy 
and blameless and above reproach. And he shall glorify them in bringing them to full conformance of the image of his son. You see what that is saying. And one of the things that I do, I am preparing for us to go into Romans and all these other books. That is why I work all these texts so that we have a more balanced view of the scriptures. We are not just going to be looking at John and just say what John says and then stop there. We can do that and have a 25-minute sermon, but it doesn't bring the agility of knowing the Word of God. So we have to connect the pieces because they are all saying the same thing. Okay? So we go to these other places where God gave much clearer explanation of those things so that we really understand what that is saying. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2, Apostle Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. According to Peter, this is just a greeting, and it begins with election. Imagine just going to these places and you begin your greeting with election. People are like, where did this guy come from? <laughs> according to Peter, the saints are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, according to the love, the forelove of God the Father. And that is language according to the love of God, to say according to the love of God. It is not at all saying for knowledge of who would believe. This is one of the sticky points that we have with Armenians because they say, or oh, God elects people that he foresaw would believe the gospel. He looked through the telescopic lenses of time and saw that so and so were going to believe the gospel. And on that basis, he chose them. And then what that means is God is making his choice based on what the person does or does not do. Okay? But Peter is not talking about that here. He's not talking about faith here. He's not talking about foreseen faith here. He is not talking about how the pilgrims became saints by exercising their faith. That is not in view. They are saints because God chose them. He forloved them, and that is to say, not because of them. He loved them in Christ, and that was God's eternal purpose and decree. If God could not love you in Christ, he has no other basis on which to love you. If God cannot love someone in Christ, there is no other basis on which he can show you his love. And so one who is not of Christ, one who is not in Christ, cannot be loved of God. It doesn't matter how rich or how famous they become. All the work of God is in Christ. That his purpose in election may stand. The work of God in salvation is in Christ. That Christ may be made preeminent in all things including salvation. Romans 9, 6 to 16. And that will be my last text in Redan.
Romans 9, it's impossible to talk about election and not go to Romans 9. It's just not possible. Romans 9, 6 to 16. Romans 9, when we actually get to Romans, we're going to be in there for a long time because we have to go to the Old Testament and work all the details of what was happening and then bring it and then illustrate it. But this is just a summary. So we have to go back to the Old Testament, but we're not going there today. Okay. Romans 9, 6 to 16, Apostle Paul writes and says, Oh, by the way, everybody likes Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Romans 9, they just wish Paul would have ended the book of Romans in Romans, Romans 8. <laughs> but um, the Lord was not pleased to do so. So we are stuck with Romans 9. Romans 9, 6 to 16, Apostle Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It is not that the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The children of election, the sheep. For this is the word of promise, verse 9. At this time I'll come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls. It was said to him, the older shall save the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. God forbid, may it never be. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Election to salvation is not conditioned on the sinner and their response. Election to salvation is not conditioned on the sinner and their response. Election is not conditioned on your faith. Election is conditioned on Christ and his obedience on behalf of his elect. And because it is all on Christ, it only comes to us as grace because grace gives 100% of everything. It does not do just part of something. Christ is the merit of election and salvation. And we are recipients of God's grace in him. God applies the merits of Christ to us freely. And that is why it is called grace. Jacob and Esau were twins. 
born of the same father, Isaac, and same mother, Rebecca, and had the same grandfather, Abraham, who had all the promises, including the coming of Christ. Abraham was Esau's grandfather. And you would think, if Abraham was my grandfather, I was in. You would have thought that if someone is that close to the promises of life and righteousness, they are automatically in. You would think salvation would naturally flow to the kids, to all the kids, or both the kids, but not according to God. He said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And this was not because of anything bad that they had done. They had done neither good or bad. Why? That's confusing. Election is not based on whether one is good or bad. Election is not dependent on the one being chosen, whether they are good or bad. It doesn't matter. Verse 10 says, 10 and 11 of Romans 9. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, see, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so you could not attribute their salvation to anything that they did. That the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So it's all about the one who calls, the one who chose. If election was based on the bad ones, then all would be saved. If we say God only saves the bad guys, then all would be saved because all are bad. Right? Because that's the condition. Everyone has to be saved. And if it was based on the good ones, if election, say, was based on the good ones, then none would be saved. Why? Because God does not save good people. It's contrary to his glory. God does not save anyone that is good. He does not bring anyone to himself who is good because if they are good, they have bases to boast. And so if they were good people, none would come and none would have the righteousness of Christ. We only possess the righteousness of Christ because we are sinners and also because we are in him. And that means without our sin, at best, we would possess the righteousness of the innocent Adam before the fall, and that is not good enough to do business in heaven. The righteousness of Adam could not purchase anything for you in heaven. Nothing. It was not good enough, and so God demonstrated that it was not good enough by the fall of Adam. And God says, the basis of salvation, the basis of election is according to his purpose. It's not according to anything that is found or is not found in the sinner. And his purpose, as I said, is according to his grace, that his grace may be glorified. 
So God does nothing for free. God never does anything for free. If he does it, it has to redound to his glory. If God does not get glorified in anything, he does not do it. (laughs) So the fall of Adam happened because Christ was going to be glorified in the redemption of his people. You hear that? So this is what I'm saying. Election has nothing to do with the one being elected, which means your salvation absolutely has nothing to do with what you have done or what you have not done. It is all about God's purpose in Christ, his glory. And that's your only hope. Because if God is not in the glory business, you will lose your salvation. But you can't lose your salvation because God has tied his glory to your salvation. And so God has his elect from among the poor, the rich, you name them, from among all the races and classes of people and from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Election is not respect of persons. Election is not according to foreseen faith. If we say that, we deny the argument of Esau and Jacob. The scriptures say they were not yet born, not yet born, which means their parents or themselves had no input as to make the difference. It was not their bloodline. Because if it was bloodline, then Esau should have been saved because he was the grandson of Abraham. And they had done nothing good or bad. So the elect then are chosen by the grace of God. Not because they are good or not because they are bad or not because of a sin faith. And this is where the majority of professing Christians lose it. That is, they say, that is unfair. God has to give everyone a chance. (laughs) As if they would be able to exercise anything useful if they were given the chance. There's a huge problem. When people argue that there's a huge problem, their argument is not the God of the Bible. Their argument is not from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does whatever he wants. That's problem number one that they don't understand. And if he gives everyone a chance, no one gets saved. No one. Absolutely no one. There is no unrighteousness in God in choosing Jacob, the heel catcher over Esau. There's no unrighteousness. You can't charge God with sin because of election. It is not about Esau and it is not about Jacob. They make the argument about Esau or Jacob and they fail to make the argument about Christ. It is about Christ. It is not about you or me. It is all about Christ. It is all about glory. Because it is about Christ, God can serve even the worst of sinners, because it was never about their sin. Understand that? It was never about the intensity or degree of their sin. It is so that his glory, the glory of his grace, may be praised by those that he chooses. The remnant according to grace. That's the language of Romans 11, I believe. The remnant according to grace. They are a remnant. They are the remainder of the garment 
that can't be used to sew a full shirt. And as a remnant, you typically just sweep them and throw them away in the trash. And the believer, the elect, are called the remnant because they have no merit. They have nothing to bring to Christ. So we have a remnant that is according to grace. We are a remnant. And it is to this remnant that Jesus came and said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and I'm known by my own sheep as the father knows me. Even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now listen to the intimacy of how he knows the sheep. He says, the father knows him and that can't be saying that he knows some things that are true about Christ. It is saying the father loves him and so the son also loves the father in like manner. And so he loves the sheep. As the father loves Christ and knows Christ, so Christ loves the sheep and knows the sheep. And he loves them with a godly love. You hear me? And because of that, the sheep can't be separated from the shepherd. And in turn, his sheep know Christ. Jesus said, that is a reality that comes out of that relationship. His sheep will know him and they know him. They hear his voice. The sheep know their shepherd because he has given his life for them. So one indicator, if you want to know, if you know the shepherd, your testimony is, my shepherd is the one who gave his life for my life. And that means they believe in the person and the work of Christ. They believe in the gospel of grace as sufficient for them to be spared of death. The sheep know Christ because the spirit that is in them testifies to them that they are the children of God. And it is the sheep alone that believe in the gospel of grace. And according to Jesus, if one belongs to him, they will know him. There is no other choice. He is known by his sheep. He is loved by his sheep. And sheep have to love Jesus. True sheep hear and believe the gospel because that is the love letter to them from the shepherd. And so the sheep are the bride. The bride of the bridegroom. And how can a bride not want to hear from their husband? We as those who profess Christ have to be excited to love and to learn more about the things of Jesus. There's nothing else that is important for us to be talking about than to talk about Christ. And if anyone who professes to love Christ but deny their gospel, then that's their problem. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own and amen. Praise the Lord. I'm done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending us your son, the good shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. And I think we, because of the flesh, really underestimate what this means. We think that heaven is just an extension of the life that we live here. 
And yet this is the most glorious place that anyone could be. And knowing Christ is the most glorious knowledge that anyone could have. And we just ask that you cause your people not to tire to hear about him. But the time has been appointed for them to come. And they need to know how to approach you. And they need to come with hope and with peace because of what Christ did for them. Lord, I pray and I thank you for giving us understanding, for choosing us in him, for causing us to know him and to hear his voice. We pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen.